it was sort of like a whole lesson in intention versus method. So my intention was really clear that I wanted to earn a living musically, but I was open to the method. It didn't have to be, you know, from doing a Broadway show or doing jingles or doing, it, I was open to the method. And I think because of that, um, so many different methods showed up that I never even thought about. Cause some of them, like I started doing concert work. I didn't even know that that existed, you know, for someone in my world. And, and that's been a huge source of income for me for the last 20 some years. So, um, you know, and then I had an agent that was booking concert dates for me and they retired and I thought, well, I can do that, you know? And so I started a booking agency, which now has like really grown and it's, you know, I'm really proud of that. And that is allowing me to actually, you know, leave the country and work remotely um, from Lisbon, which I'm so excited about because um, that is a well-oiled machine. And I have an amazing assistant, Greg, in New York. And we, I was just in Lisbon for a month and, you know, we tested it out and it works. Camp Beefy Uncensored podcast with my dear friend Lee Lessack. Episode 58, everybody. This is so exciting, and I am so, so happy to introduce my dear friend Lee, who I have known since 1987. Very funny story behind that. You'll have to listen in on to the podcast to hear that how that came about. Join us to hear what our conversation covers, which is kind of a vast uh, culmination of sorts as artists, performers, and how intention versus method developed into lifelong careers and opportunities and where Lee is heading today. I'm super excited for you to join us and hear our really fun conversation. So grab that coffee and cannoli and pull up that chair and join us around the campfire for this fun conversation of part one with my dear friend, Lee Lessack. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Well, so um, I'm just gonna kick it off and say, Good morning, Lee Lesak, my dear longtime friend, and thank you so much for joining me on the Camp BP Uncensored podcast. We've got lots to talk about, and it's been so long since we've really been able to have it, a heart-to-heart chat, that I just want to kind of go into the background of who you are and how we know one another. We met, I believe it was in 1987. I think so. In Chicago, Lord and Taylor counter, <laughs> where I brushed you off. You did so rude. I just wonder, like, is that in my character? Was that like something that I've carried totally. forward? Have I? Wow! I don't know. You had no time for me because I had to get to the counter because I think I must have been running right. a couple you minutes were with late. Right. Right. And you were but with then two Lentil. weeks later, you went to yeah. Rosh Hashanah services with me, so you made up for it. And I think your mother was a little interested in the possibility of a future. There you and go. I, just I think had that's the like... last time that I went to Rosh Hashanah services. <laughs> you didn't want the pressure. <laughs> Without you, it would not be nearly as fun. <laughs> well, you know. Thank I thank you, and I'll take that as a compliment, frankly. And uh, no, I think, you know, the beauty of our relationship that is beyond unexplainable, because look, at you and I have both come in contact with lots and lots of people in our lifetime, lots. And we're just people, people. 
and any of us, like the, the, the asteroids colliding in that moment, I mean, how many people have approached you at a, at a cosmetic counter saying, do you want to have a smell of this perfume or cologne? <laughs> to have that connection, here we are all this lifetime later, is really kind of sweet and unusual, but, totally but for all the random. right reasons. And right, so exactly. random. And, you know, I've been really philosophical about that randomness lately, ironically, that you should use that word. I, I've been saying to like Randy and, uh, you know, what, what are the chances of these moments happening? Like, is this, was this in the plan? Was this not in the plan? Like, how is that? And that our lives, you and me, like how these, it's kind of like this kind of DNA dance. It's like, we, we never get to really spend time together, but there's this, there's this love and connection and a desire to be in touch and it's not even like we really work together, you know, or we get to break bread together, but there's just this kind of like brotherly, sisterly glue. I don't know how else we, would you describe it? You did, you did good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Good. So good. we met in, we met in Chicago randomly two weeks later that I didn't remember was just, two weeks later that was quick that we're going to Rosh Hashanah together (laughs) (laughs) I mean I moved in with people probably sooner than that but right (laughs) but not going to temple (laughs) but not I mean given the choices it was safer going to temple (laughs) (laughs) yeah crazy huh so crazy and so crazy because you know, life decisions, speaking of which, was it in 88 or 89 that you moved to L.A.? I think it was 88. It could have been 89. I am so bad with dates. Like, I know people, you know, I'll see their posts or whatever, and they're like, you know, 17 years and 13 hours ago, you know, <laughs> I had a pancake at IHOP in West Hollywood. It's <laughs> just like, I literally don't remember what happened yesterday. I'm just not a date person. Yeah. What is your strength? But, what, you would, what would you describe your strength to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm like a people person. I'm a connector, you know, but I'm just not good with dates, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's that kinesiology. Yeah. It's like the visual versus the auditory versus the touchy feely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely so, think you are a great engager and I think you're a great networker and I think you're a great connector. I think that's why you, you know, it, I, I think it's interesting how in 96 after coming to LA and you became a personal initially, like when you came to LA, did you have anything lined up? What was the, what was the catalyst? I don't remember what no. caused the move. Initially. Well, the catalyst was I spent a winter in Chicago. <laughs> That was the catalyst. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I had an apartment in New York, um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to go back to New York. And I had come out to L.A. to do like a seminar, like a personal growth meditation seminar in the desert. And I kind of liked it. And so um, I was like, well, you know what? I think I'll take a chance and just check it out. And if I don't like it, I had an agent at the time in Chicago um, and they had offices in LA. So I thought, oh, maybe, you know, I can, you know, break in the business or something. I don't know. Um, so I came out here. Yeah. And I, um, I decided I was not going to wait tables again. Yeah. Uh, and so I like, I don't know, I went to a temp agency. I worked for like, uh one of the um i don't know whether it was b'nai brith or jewish federation i was like selling ads in their newspaper that um that was lucrative and uh, that was I, lucrative. I love that <laughs> not. were you being sarcastic then, or were you being sincere no it was not lucrative <laughs> and um and then I went to a temp agency 
And they, my first assignment was working for a producer at ABC Circle Films, which back then um, ABC did these movies of the week. Yeah. And Circle Films was the division that produced the movies. And I was uh, working like as an assistant to a producer because her assistant was getting married or something. So I was there for 10 days and it was right around Thanksgiving. It was kind of dead. There wasn't much going on. Um, but she took a liking to me. And um, I, um, I remember she was going, she and friends of hers were, were flying this um, chef down from San Francisco who had written this cookbook about like breakfasty foods. And, and they were gonna, a group of them were gonna do like a cooking class. And so she um, showed me this cookbook and she said, you know, these are the eight recipes we're gonna cover. Can you make, you know, copies for everyone? Well, little did she know that my father owned a stationery, an office supply store in Philadelphia. This is before Staples. Wow. So when it comes to Xeroxing, I am very well-versed. And so I made these like brilliant, like spiral bound books for each of the people that were doing this cooking class. And well, that was it. She just thought that was the best thing since brand muffins. And so um, when I was leaving after, I was there for like two weeks, I think. She called me into her office. She gave me a gift, this beautiful leather wallet. And she said, I really want to help you. Um, leave me your resume. And I left her a, a, an acting resume and a business resume. And um, I don't know, a week later, two weeks later, she called me. She said, listen, a very good friend of mine is a celebrity and they're looking for a personal assistant. And I think this would be really good for you. You're new here. You'll learn your way around the city, just running errands for them. And they're good people. I mean, even if you just do it for six months, it'll be a really good exercise for you. And I then got hired by Henry Winkler and his wife, Stacy, and was with them for seven years. Jesus, so that was I like, that I was my remember. entree into LA. And, seven and years. A, I didn't know that it was seven years. Mm-hmm. Yep. Seven years. A bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, and three houses. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of production. Yeah. yeah. So that was like my entree into LA. And I think that it was a great learning ground. And um, it gave me like a lot of courage. I was like kind of fearless. And so when I left finally, um, which was never easy because it was always like super busy or there was another event happening or whatever. And I, they were like my family. I mean, I adored them. But I, um, you know, I realized I'm never going to like get promoted to Henry. So yeah, <laughs> it was like a, there was a cap on my existence there. And uh, anyway, so I left and I um, had saved up a lot of money and I wanted to record an album. So I recorded an album and um, then I started a record label because who was going to take my calls, right? And, um, and I started like producing and I don't think that I would have had the guts to do it um, if I hadn't had that job. Like I just sort of gave me confidence, you know, and um, yeah, so that was kind of my entree into um, LA. And so I think I left there like in 93, mm -hmm. 1993. Okay. So that was 20, 30 years ago. That must Almost be why 30 I... years ago. Yeah. And yeah. And then I've never had a job since then. I mean, other than my own companies, I've never worked for anybody. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the reason why I was like seven years, because I moved, I ended up follow, not following you and some following you, but I knew LA was going to be the future. I just didn't know when. 
And of course, you know, at the time, that's when I had, you know, connected with Dan and did that whole thing. And we were together actually for seven years. So it makes sense because even though we moved here in 92 and we split in 93, ironically, this is why this is a little bit of a fog to me about your trajectory because I was like, why didn't I realize you had been with the Winklers for seven years? Well, because clearly that was in the late 80s into the early 90s. And it felt like you had left actually soon after I arrived here, but a lot was going on with me. And then you had your stuff going on with you. So now it makes total sense, Lee. Isn't that funny? After all these mm-hmm. years of knowing each other, this feels like the first time I'm hearing all of this, which warms my heart. I decided I to that. save save some good stories <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that's the beauty of the sitting down, so to speak, because we don't right? do this. So I oh, love wow. that you like filled in those blanks because I always ask myself, what? what made you all of a sudden launch MLML? And I was like, and how did that happen? And you just shared how that happened and how you had learned from this trajectory of working with initially the ABC exec and then moving on to Winkler's, how that gave you the confidence, it gave you the tools and the sense and and the the leverage fiscally and maybe even connections. Right. I mean, I truly only began this record label for my own album. That was it. I, that was as as far as my vision was. It was like mm-hmm. one thing. And mm-hmm. then, um, but I um, worked really hard to, you know, market and, and get press and whatnot. And so, and I'm like nobody, literally. And I, my album was reviewed in Billboard magazine and Advocate magazine. And so it was I got a lot of attention for being nobody. And, um, and so other artists started reaching out to me asking if I would distribute their album, which I never thought about. I'll never forget the first artist was Brian Lane Green. He was a big soap opera star and yeah. Broadway, Tony nominee and whatnot. And, and I was like, well, I, Guess I could. I remember like going to the bank and opening up a separate bank account for his album. Everything was manual, you know, calculating royalty. It was all manual. And um, and then somebody else approached me and I thought, well, you know, if I'm calculating for two, I guess I could calculate for three or four, you know, and then six months later, I'd be like, well, I guess I could calculate for six, you know, and then it just, you know, the machine just sort of left the station. You know what I mean? And, you know, now I've got, I don't know, 150 artists that from all over the world that I distribute for. And um, so that's been like a really um, a nice little gem for me not that you know it doesn't pay my mortgage but it certainly has given me entree because people know the label and um yeah so that's that was that's been a good thing you know fiscally like there's so many rewards in life and it's not always in dollars and cents that wealth or abundance is represented you know, it's in the value of the relationships and the connections. It's in the value of the experience. It's, I mean, we all need money to function and to, and we both know as artists, the importance of, like you said, you know, if you're a nobody in a world of somebodies, it, it, right. it takes <laughs> something and it takes a lot yeah. of persistence and belief and chutzpah and confidence and all those things and then luck and trust and timing and blah, blah, blah. And it's never ends. It never ends. No. And you know, I, um, I can't remember who said this to me or when it was said to me, but I distinctly remember that um, I made 
the choice that I wanted to like pay my rent musically, however that appeared, whether it was me performing or singing, whether it was, you know, the record, like whatever. And so um, it was sort of like, maybe I read it, I don't know, but it was sort of like a whole lesson in intention versus method. So my intention was really clear that I wanted to earn a living musically, but I was open to the method. It didn't have to be, you know, from doing a Broadway show or doing jingles or doing, it, I was open to the method. And I think because of that, um, so many different methods showed up that I never even thought about. Cause some of them, like I started doing concert work, I didn't even know that that existed, you know, for someone in my world. And that's been a huge source of income for me for the last 20 some years. So, um, you know, and then I had an agent that was booking concert dates for me and they retired. And I thought, well, I can do that, you know, and so I started a booking agency, which now has like really grown. And it's, you know, I'm really proud of that. And that is allowing me to actually, you know, leave the country and work remotely um, from Lisbon, which I'm so excited about because um, that is a well-oiled machine. And I have an amazing assistant, Greg, in New York. And we, I was just in Lisbon for a month and, you know, we tested it out and it works. It really works. The schedule and communication and everything else. And so, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that, that, that I have somehow been able to navigate um, many different layers of um of work all music related um and it's a great balance for me because i am you know most artists are you know very it's very left brain you know very creative not business minded at all and i'm like right down the middle i really enjoy that and so um that's been a great balance for me because, you know, for the last 20 some years, I am able to go out on tour and, you know, uh, fulfill my, you know, artist needs uh, and you know, run a company. So. I also think, I, I, th I mean, honestly, again, so many things have just been so seamlessly answered and it's so funny to me that we've known each other so long and I just love that this kind of full circle of information is just like oh there's that puzzle piece it made me like flash back to us in our early mid-20s when we met and how it's because of you uh, that I started exploring like a spiritual path. I don't even want to put it into that terminology, but it was kind of like the Mary, Wil the you know, the Marianne Williamson mo moments and the science of the mind moments and all that kind of stuff that made me think about this, again, this journey, this like path of, of yours, of mine, yours, particularly because the reveal of all that is that you flowed. You you didn't like put yourself, you didn't try to like put the square peg into the round hole. You stayed open to what was possible, knowing that, like you said, your intention versus your method, which made your intention like almost uh, reveal as being coachable because you allowed yourself to flow and stay present and allow for all right. those doors to reveal themselves and open up and build on that, like a snowball effect, consciously or unconsciously. The consciousness was that you wanted to, to be around music. Did you always know that you wanted to sing 
Like what as a little boy, as little Lee, what what was well, coming up for you? Yes, I always wanted to sing, but I <laughs> wasn't ever really that good. Um, it reminds me of something dear mama told me just a few years ago, how she felt so bad for me when she came to my high school musical, because she was like, you wanted to sing so badly, but you were so awkward and your head was really large for your body. I'll leave you with that. Oh, anyway, go so out into the I, world and be who you mean to be. Right. So I always wanted to sing, but I, I and I could always get cast because I, you know, had a decent enough voice and, you know, was you have a gorgeous voice in tune. But I hadn't really found my voice. And when I was living in New York, you know, it was so overwhelmed. I was taking voice lessons. I was going to acting school. And then I came out here and while I was working for the Winklers, I started taking voice lessons just, you know, for an outlet. And I'll never forget, I was, I don't know, 27 years old, 28 years old. And I was in the shower and I was doing like the exercises that my voice teacher had given me. And it was like something shifted. And I heard a sound that was uniquely mine. And it was a moment where I literally, what I saw was that my voice was an instrument and I figured out how to play it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. And that was like a moment for me. And it gave me great confidence because I felt like this is mine. This is uniquely mine. And a friend of mine, um, or maybe it was this voice teacher, that you should go, they have an open mic night, you know, you should go. And so I went and I got up and sang a song and the, the pianist that night was Michael Orland. Who oh my God. Was on American Idol all those years and he co-produced yeah. my first album. I just saw him last weekend, um, all these years. I know him from New York. Anyway, um, and so I sang a song and I went and sat down and the manager or owner, I don't know, came over to me and she said, you're very good. Would you like to do a show? And I was like, sure. What's the show? Your show. I'm like, I don't really have a show. I have one song. <laughs> and so Michael and I put together, you know, my very first cabaret show and you know, the was venue the loved me because, no, that was at the Rose Tattoo on oh, wow. Robertson. Yeah. And of course, Henry Winkler came and all their friends. And so the club loved me because it was like a who's who in the audience. And, um, and then I would take like a vacation and go to New York and I'd book a, a night there. And, you know, it was it was easy for me in a sense, because I wasn't doing it for the money. You know, I was doing it just because I wanted to do it. So um, I did that for a couple of years. I would, you know, do a concert in LA and then go back to New York and do a night there. And, you know, and I was still working and, um, and I, it was through that, I'll never forget, after I left the Winklers, I, was, um, I went in the studio to record this album. And a very dear friend of mine, like from high school days, uh, was living in New York, great singer. And I had met uh, a woman out here and she told me about this organization um, called Community Concerts, which was like a nonprofit volunteer organization all over, really in middle America. And it was managed at the time under the umbrella of Columbia Artists Management in New York City. And basically they, they brought, you know, live music, musical entertainment to the heartland of America. It started out, it was like 80 years old. It started out doing chamber music and classical music. And then, you know, and they would put together like a, a roster of, you know, a dozen shows. And then they had sales reps that would go out on the road and you know they would book 
in this city and then in the next city and and they were able to route you know a, a lot of dates for you so i called my friend joanne i said listen i'm going to be in the studio recording this album why don't you fly out and let's you know we'll go in the studio while i'm already renting it and we'll do a demo of like just snippets of different broadway stuff and we put together this cassette tape a demo called an enchanted evening the music of broadway and i sent a copy of my cd and a copy of this cassette to columbia artists you know with a cover letter and i i was in chicago visiting my parents and they called and they were like thank you for sending the packet you know we think your cd is really lovely but we're very interested in your broadway review you know can we can we come see you on tour? And I'm like, I don't have a tour. I have like a seven minute cassette tape. So I said, well, actually I'm on tour at the moment in another production in Chicago. It's called, I'm visiting my, my parents for Passover. <laughs> and I said, and Joanne is in New York, but perhaps we could come and do a presentation for you. And they were like, oh, that's fantastic. So I hired a friend of mine, a Broadway guy, to create a 20-minute presentation, which he did. And we did it. And they sat us down on the lip of the stage. And they said, we think you're great. We're going to put you in the roster. And I think for like three years, they were able to route like, I don't know, 50, 60 cities for us. So that was huge because I had never earned, you know, a dime doing concerts, you know. Um, it was really a great uh, education and learning ground. And I am saying very, very small towns. Um, but we would like, you know, fly to Minneapolis where, the, um, where their office was and we'd rent a car. Uh, or an SUV, and we'd go for eight weeks, and we'd drive from city to city and do these concerts. And I think back then, I don't know, we probably were making, you know, $2,000 a night, which was huge. Oh, yeah. To oh, me. Good, yeah. And, but the, and this was before cell phones and GPS and, I mean, crazy, crazy. And this was you and Joanne and an accompanist. And a, and a pianist, this yeah. Yeah. And we did that Amazing. for like three years, three or four years. And then they went out of business and um, I signed with this agent in Atlanta and they booked us, you know, not as many dates, but at that point we could charge more because we had like a touring history. And so they got us, you know, a handful of dates every year but for more money. So it, it worked out. And then I started my own LML Music Presents. And, you know, we have sort of a celebrity division. Like we very proudly represent Cheetah Rivera, who's mm -hmm. legendary. Um, and we route a lot of concert dates for Leia Salanga, who's just one of my favorites. And, and we've got a lot of Broadway um uh, names that we route tours for. And then we produce um, tour tributes, things like this that sell, you know, after all these years, I kind of know what sells and it's usually either a big name or a theme that people gravitate towards, you know, whether it's right. Sinatra or whatever. So yeah, right. it's worked out. It's worked out. I mean, wow, what what a really cool evolution that you could never, like if you and I were sitting down in 1987 and we were looking in a crystal ball, no damn way. No, I, mean, I didn't even know those... that, that concerts like this happened. Like I had no clue babe i don't even know like i think i i mean i know that i knew you were from philly i knew you had come out of the academy of dramatic arts i knew that we both had that similar background 
I also think consciously or unconsciously, uh, the reason why I was drawn to you was because I'm very right and left brain myself. And I, and, and I, and I like logic while I also like to, to have that freedom and that artistic, uh, um, expression. And there, and, and there's a lot of people who are out there like that, but if you're with artists, a lot of times they're only running on one side of the brain. And then with your, with business, they're only running on another side of the brain. And, you know, it's a matter of finding the tribe, so to speak. Yep. And I do think that that is unconsciously one of those things that why we always respected or understood each other, no matter, you know, where we were in life. But I think that, um, you know, when you have all these years later, decades now under your belt. And again, if we had been sitting back in 1987, you know, hanging out at a counter gun. So what do you see for yourself in the next 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's so crazy. And, and, you know, and now like in this past year, you know, during the pandemic, Mark and I had a lot of time to talk about what's next, you know, and we were really clear on a few things like we do not want to live here through another election for sure. And um, we started like just fantasizing about where could we, there's like nowhere in the U.S. that calls to us we're not like palm springs people you know we have so many friends that have you know weekend homes in palm springs and then that's where they retire to but yeah. um we're not those people and there's nowhere that i mean there's plenty of beautiful places in the country but nowhere that calls to us and i've traveled a lot throughout yeah. the country and the world so i mean i've been to most cities <laughs> I think yes and um and then I right before the pandemic we did um a river cruise up the Rhine from Basel Switzerland to Amsterdam and we met these guys from well from LA but they had been living in Miami and they retired to the south of France and they had just recently done it and so we were chatting with them we kept up with them really throughout the whole pandemic and that sort sort of got us thinking i mean we knew we weren't going to go to france but um um i had another client from my record label and he and his husband retired in this on the southern coast of spain and he was saying how you know the cost of living is so much less and healthcare and all this stuff and so we started looking there and then I think Mark thought that the weather would be too hot in the summer and he also isn't mm -hmm. thrilled with the food in Spain. And so he just started looking at weather patterns and mm -hmm. he said to me one day, he said, you know, Lisbon has the same temperature almost every day as Santa Barbara. So it's a little mm -hmm. cooler than LA. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And we started like following these vloggers and, and whatnot. And um, it was kind of crazy. And then I started mentioning it to some people and they were like, oh, do you know so-and-so? No, I have to introduce you because they just moved a year ago. And, you know, so we're like Zooming with all these people that have a shared process. Yeah. And um, it was crazy. It was crazy. And then in November, one of the people we were talking to introduced us to a developer in Lisbon and he showed us this project and we like flipped for it. Um, I mean, for several reasons, it's the location and the style and everything, but it has like a 600 square foot private enclosed yard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with two dogs, we need a yard and they don't have a lot of yards in Lisbon. We had been talking to people and they were like, that's the only downside is finding, you know, a yard for the dog. Yeah, there's tons of parks, but not private yards. So we were like, let's put a reservation down on this. Now, mind you, we had been to Lisbon for one day on a cruise ship 18 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so we put down this reservation 
And then in February, we went to London for my birthday. And I said to Mark, we have to fly to Lisbon. We have to like walk down the street and make sure. And it was great. We had done so much research and with, you know, the internet and, and, and YouTube, I mean, we really felt like we knew where we were because we had watched so much content. Yeah. And, um, and that just sort of started um, this whole process. And then in April, we drafted a contract and put down a deposit. And meanwhile, this is not going to be ready for a, over a year easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing happens very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And but in February, when we got back from uh, our trip, I ran into a friend of mine from the neighborhood who, uh, during the pandemic, moved to Montecito. And we were up in Montecito and just went out for lunch and ran into him. And we were mentioning how excited we were about Lisbon. And he said, you guys need to sell your house now. And I was like, but we're, we're not going to move for like a year and a half. And he's like, you need to sell your house now. And I was like, maybe he knows something, you know, I don't know. It's the first house I've ever owned and we've been there 23 years. So it was like, and thank God uh, we listened to him. We listened to him because we sold our house in, in the right moment on the right day to the first person that walked through and offered us all cash. And it enabled us to write this chapter in such a great way with no stress. And so it's kind of exciting. It's kind of it's exciting. very exciting. And, yeah. and yeah, you know, I think it's kind of going back to uh, the, the question we leaned into earlier about random, like, was that random that that person totally you know? random. well no oh no 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 there are no mistakes no. there are no mistakes i mean we have been perfectly guided to yeah. our team on the ground in lisbon is off the charts fantastic and they've all just organically come to us through various people and um it's really nice it's really nice so it's very exciting. Very exciting. It, I have four it is more very weeks. Exciting. Four was, more weeks. And you're out. I know. I'm not taking this fake tree. So if you know. No, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, so in four more weeks, will you officially be a dual citizen? Are you already? No. Dual- no. Um, we are just waiting for our visa approval, which will happen any day now. And then we will, um, flying over, um, you have 120 days from the time they put the visa in your passport to enter the country. Okay. And then, and then one, usually, and-, and then about uh, four months later, you have, um, um, a biometrics appointment with the consulate um, over there where they do, they fingerprint you and blah, blah, blah. And you have to show whatever documentation, uh, you know, health insurance and a lease or purchase or whatever. And very similar to what we had to show for our application. Um, so then we'll get a residence card. And that will be good for two years. And then that's renewed for three more years. And then after five years, we apply for our passport. And then we'll have dual citizenship. Okay. So, so it's, it's, it, it is an earned thing. And it is a process. And it isn't just handed over. And that, that makes sense. Um, in regards to owning real estate over there, how does that legally apply? Like, how can you legally own real estate over there if you're not officially citizens? Does that has no bearing whatsoever because it's an investment. So. As far as yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that. We're paying for it. So, 
<laughs> yes, you're helping the economy, however, and I mean, you know, you just never know from 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 country to country, port to port, how how that all you no, know. And then once we have our dual citizenship, we can move and live anywhere in the EU. Yep. Anywhere. That's not that's that we're looking to move, the EU. But, yeah. No, but 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 nonetheless, I mean, I remember in '98-'99 when that all married. You know, I'm sure for the EU, it wasn't the simplest of transitions. You know, my, mindfully yeah. speaking, because that's a lot yeah. of countries to marry together, so to speak. Right, right. But for anybody but, like ourselves who thinks as an American, hypothetically, I don't want to say all of us umbrella together, but the fact that the fact that you get to be a part of something greater and have no borders, so to speak. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's like it's almost if you think of Europe as the U.S., where but every state is its own country. Correct. So, like we we can travel freely within the U.S. We can move and live anywhere we want, and it's the same thing over there. So, but it's very interesting that you bring that up because as our careers went forward yours being the music mine being makeup and hair and film and television one of the interesting things when we first both arrived here that's different um not a negative but an interesting application to what you were just describing and what i talk about quite a bit when i when i first moved here in 92 i was not yet in the union part of the world of film and television. I was an independent artist and um, <clears throat> and uh, heading up independent films in Chicago, what have you. When I moved here, LA had most of the country represented. Uh, that's so if you were based out of here, that's why there was so much respect for Hollywood artists. Right. And, um, <clears throat> you know, not only in this country, but worldwide. And Chicago had a hundred mile radius and the East coast had the 13 boarded States. So you would think as an American, you should be able to travel and work anywhere. Right. Not so much. No. Nope. Wow. Yeah, and now LA is giving away everything. I'm sorry. I know. LA is giving away everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, it's, it's a really good time. I mean, the dollar is so it's like, it hasn't been this strong in 22 years. So um it's really it's just a good time for us anyway to yeah. um and and much easier for me because my all of my income will be earned in the US um and they have a lot of incentives in Portugal um for uh people to to move there you know um if you're not earning income in Portugal there's a program that we will um, apply to, and it, it waives tax for 10 years, you know? So the 10 years, I hope to be retired. Right. So it won't really matter, you know? Well, and to that point, Lee, I mean, in 10 years, at cresting 70, I think it would be in 10 years, the, the truth is, is you're booking, you know, your LML presents still could very much be a very oh, yeah. affluent, active source of yeah. income without you having to put the same kind of effort because right. of the team you have working yeah. all of yeah, that. For sure. For sure. Kind of we'll like network marketing. Yeah. 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 We'll see what happens in the next, you know, couple of years and how it transitions and, you know, um, but it's a very exciting um, chapter. It's not one that I ever thought I would be doing much as I've always loved being in Europe and I've always, you know, fantasized about living there, but not in a realistic way at all. And this just and certainly not Portugal. Like that was never on my radar at all. But it just makes sense um, because of all the incentives 
because real estate is such a good investment there right now, because in the major cities, um, everybody speaks English. So it won't be a hard transition. I mean, I really want to learn. It's a hard language. We're going to go to school into like an immersive program because I really, really, really want to learn it. But I can get by for, you know, until that time when I'm speaking. So, you know, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of um, things in our favor. And um, just the day-to-day cost of living and is so much less. It's just so much less, you know? And healthcare, you know, it's great. It's really great. How does healthcare work for somebody who is not who is who has a visa but's not yet officially a citizen? How does that so how will that work for you guys? As soon as we have our visa, we apply um, for the NHS, the National Health Society or something. I don't know, but and then we'll get a card and then we can use public health, you know, but insurance over there is so inexpensive like i can get a year policy of private insurance for fifteen hundred dollars so i'm gonna do both i already signed up a membership with this medical concierge service so i have like my nurse assigned to me and i mean i can text her on whatsapp 24 7 Mm -hmm. and they're amazing like they are amazing. They have all my medical records now. And, you know, I don't, I'm not on very much medication, but the few things that I want to establish over there. So there's no lapse, like they're doing all of that. And for their service for a year, it was $180. I mean, it's just crazy. We were there this summer and we rented a farmhouse at the beach in you know a town of four and mark (laughs) woke up one morning like and he's like i think i need a root canal and i'm like okay well it's saturday and we're on a farm yeah yeah i went to the pharmacy and just got some like novocaine spray or ambicillin whatever they have over there and i texted the woman that managed the rental property and and she said, Monday morning, I will get you into the clinic. And so off we go on Monday. We had like a five o'clock appointment at a clinic, like 30 minutes away. But it was a, a sizable little city. And state of the art, state of the art. And they were incredible. And he was examined by a dentist. They did a full set of digital images and then he went back and they read the results and no waiting and um and the doctor said you do not need um, a root canal but there is a little bit of of infection so i'm going to give you antibiotics so you can fly home in three days and we walked out and paid and obviously we have no insurance there we have our tax our portuguese tax id numbers but we don't have insurance and the entire thing, including the prescription, was forty-four dollars. Incredible! It's incredible. incredible, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah. So I think that you know, um, it's definitely different. You know, it's definitely different. They operate like on the number system, like at the deli, take a ticket. For yeah. everything, for everything. So, um, you know, you take a ticket for the receptionist to check you in. Then you take a ticket and you wait until your number's on the screen to go to your examination room. Then you take a ticket to pay and everything. That's their system. But it's very organized. And, you know, so I, I think it'll be a combination of public health and private health, just depending yeah that's just my guess i've been asking a few friends that we've made over there like can you recommend a doctor and they're like no we don't have one so i think that they go to the the public hospital if they're sick and it's different 
and maybe that's just them, but so far that's been the feedback that I've gotten. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious. um, There's so many questions I want to ask you and I want to kind of go backwards before I go forwards. Um, Coming out of Philadelphia, like did, did you see yourself as a little boy just not staying there? Did you ever think about it? Like, did you know no, that, that was no, temporary? Never, yeah, never thought about staying there. Do, have you? Have you ever? Because is there even any family left in Philly? Yeah, my sister. Is your sister there, there, right? Yeah, yeah. So, do you have any any? Um, like when you go back there, like I love Philly. We've never discussed this. I absolutely love Philly. I would go there for cold case. Um, we would go there twice a year. And I found it to just be such a, well, now look at living now, living there versus visiting. I know it's two distinctly different well, things. Well, it's much better now. It's much better now. When I was growing up, it was not as good. Right. But they've really cleaned up the city and whatnot. So it's much better now. But um I don't have any calling really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you went to New York, you were, did you, you didn't, you did audition for Broadway stuff. You did do Broadway. I, I don't remember I didn't do, what. No, you, I didn't do that, but, but I did audition for things. And um, I think that I, um, you know, I moved to New York in like 82. Mm-hmm. That was a rough time in New York. You know, so, and I was, you know, fairly paranoid and <laughs> nervous. And um, I mean, it was good that I had school and friends that I was going to school with to, you know, bond with and, and whatnot, but I wasn't very adventurous, you know? Um, and in the summer, I would like do summer stock Um, Mm -hmm. and that was great training. That was really great training. Um, yeah, but then it was random. Like I was auditioning and stuff. And then one of my classmates, um, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and one of my classmates said, you should call this agent that I've been working with. And I'm like, well, what do you do? And she's like, I'm like a promotional like model. Well, what does that mean? You know, so basically this agency would place you, you know, at a department store and you'd spray perfume or cologne or whatever. But it was decent money back then, I think. And so the very first job I got was when uh, Bonwit Teller opened at Trump Tower. Sorry, I oh don't mean to God, use that. Name. Lee. No, that's <laughs> classic. That is really a classic image. Bonwit Teller at Trump Tower. And I was, um, I was hired to uh, work for Christian Dior. And so um, they had like their national makeup artists there doing, you know, makeovers. And, you know, I was spraying perfume or cologne, I don't remember. And I was fascinated by his work. And I was like watching him, you know. And I think I was there for like three days. And towards the end, he said, you're interested in this, aren't you? And I said, well, it's just fascinating to me. And he was like, well, would you like to learn? And I was like, sure. I'm telling you within six months, I became the national makeup artist for Christian Dior. Alan and I split the territory. And I was like being sent all over the country to make appearances. And, you know, I had never like stayed in a hotel by myself. It was wild, and but it gave me a taste of like making money. You know, it was decent for for that. And and you know, when I was doing summer stock, I was you know making twenty five dollars a week. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Kathy Lee Gifford's little girls make more than that. Oh, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, so. <laughs> it sort of gave me a taste of, you know, corporate life and whatnot. And I don't know, to be blown around and given an expense account. And I mean, it was wild. It was wild. I did that for a while. I was really good at it and I really liked it, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't um, something that I wanted to pursue like as a career career. In fact, that's what, when we met in Chicago, you know, I just called the office in New York and I'm like, I'm in Chicago if anything opens up. And there was, a, I, I don't even think it was full time or it might've been temporary at Lord and Taylor. And, um, and so I was there for a bit. Um, and that, you know, was a good way to make some money. And yeah, so I don't know where that. No, well, I, because, no, because I was asking you about, you know, again, like starting back in Philly and then New York. And, and it's interesting that, again, that's another puzzle piece that got that filled in for me because, you know, you, like you said, you you never in a million years would you have imagined that you would now become a national makeup artist representing a major brand. Yeah, no, like no, <laughs> that was that wasn't on the list of goals, you know. No, but there it was, no. and it gave you this opportunity to, like you said, not only make cash but travel around, stay in a hotel, to have 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 um, allowances, things that like most people don't even realize like are all these aspects of people either have this kind of a lifestyle or they don't. Right. And I was like 20 or 21 mm -hmm. or something. I mean, mm -hmm. crazy, crazy, but a great experience, like a really good experience. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because I actually didn't come out of school or any formal education until after 1985. By no means did I ever expect that I was going to become a makeup and hair artist because I had been fine art and pre-med and film. For oh, me, I didn't know you were pre-med. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't continue because I didn't have the money. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. No idea. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm so science-oriented. I'm so, wow. so healing oriented. I still feel like I'm guiding people or now, you know, putting them together with like, so what do you got going on? And let me see how we can. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to play doctor. I just really, matter of fact, three years ago before the pandemic, my internist, and I thought he was really kidding me. He's a very dry, very smart man. And he said, you need to go back to med school. And I said, I don't know if you're kidding me right now. And he was like, no, I'm not kidding you at all. We need doctors like you. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> let's, let's, let's call it straight as I just play one on like, TV. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, no, 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 seriously. You need to go back to medical school. He's like, by 60, you'll be out. Yeah. And so um, the truth is, is I'm still very, very passionate about it. And I, and, and, and the truth is, is I would probably be very geared towards, I mean, I, I like hearing, you know, I like a lot of things, but I'd probably lean into women's subject matters. Um, I, I would just personally be broaching all subjects in the sense of just putting the conversation on the table so people could break down those, that fourth wall and not have that fear of talking or just somebody very casually talking about things that then is also teaching while entertaining. That's who I think of myself as. So, yeah, sure. you know, so that's why I think I would be an asset in that world or that, that realm. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, and I think for me, it's ironic when I think about meeting you at that counter, because I was traveling around for Clinique. I was just trying to pay the bills, Lee, man. I had so much debt from school. I had so many responsibilities. I, I didn't have, it didn't feel like I had choices. It felt like I just had to. Felt like I was right. just like one foot needed the next foot, needed the next foot. Right, right. And as a freelance artist, you know, that was not, there's, there was no guarantee basement, ground floor, right, right. foundational income. It was just like, where do you get the next bread come from? And it was just a scarcity mindset that right, of I hadn't been around, you know, yeah. but it was my yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. so when I met you, it was really like, how did this, like, 
this was not the plan. This was not the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it was. (laughs) Or maybe it was. I love that you had the opportunity to listen to my conversation with Lee in part one. Next week's part two, continue our conversation as we continue to pull back and ask questions about things that we've experienced together and apart and how life is taking us in directions that never could have been predicted. In the meantime, join, subscribe, share, and listen on any of your favorite listening platforms and be a part of the Camp Fifi Uncensored podcast community where the spirit is young, the soul is wise, and the life stories are vast and where we talk about everything from soup to nuts or what I like to say from cannolis to egg and holes and don't forget the s'mores. It's where anything and everything is open for discussion. So be a part of this community where we have real connection and real conversations and really share from an authentic position. I look forward to you joining next week. Bye for now.